You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Was Conti's digital insurrection in Costa Rica misdirection? Google assesses a commercial spyware threat with high confidence. Continuing expectations of escalation in cyberspace, the limitations of an alliance of convenience. Fronton Botnet shows versatility. Russian hacktivists hit Italian targets again. The Lazarus Group undertakes new solar winds exploitation. Cryptors in the C2C market. Great Depression supply chain attack. Johannes Ulrich describes an advanced fee scam hitting crypto markets. Our guest is Marty Resch, CEO of Netography and inventor of Snort. And Canada is going to exclude Huawei from 5G networks on security grounds. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 20th, 2022. Conti's ransomware attack against Costa Rica, accompanied by calls for a general insurrection to force the government to pay its outsized ransom, may have been misdirection. Bleeping Computer reports that Conti may be breaking into smaller gangs and rebranding itself in the process, and that its noisy operation against Costa Rica may have been intended as a distraction. Researchers at Advanced Intel tweeted yesterday that while some of Conti's public-facing sites, like the Conti News dump site and its negotiation portal, remain up, the group's Tor infrastructure has been shuttered. It seems to be a rebranding, not a retirement, and the splintering seems intended to escape the increasing heat Conti is feeling from Western law enforcement organizations. But the baddies behind the brand haven't gone straight, and they'll surely be back. Recent discussions and investigations of commercial spyware and its alleged abuse by governments and other actors have focused on NSO Group and its Pegasus product, but NSO isn't the only player in this field. Google's Threat Analysis Group yesterday outlined five zero days in Chrome and in Android that have been employed against Android users. Google thinks the North Macedonian lawful intercept vendor Citros is responsible for creating the tools used to exploit the vulnerabilities. Google's Threat Analysis Group writes, We assess with high confidence that these exploits were packaged by a single commercial surveillance company, Citrox, and sold to different government-backed actors who used them in at least the three campaigns discussed below. Consistent with findings from Citizen Lab, we assess government-backed actors purchasing these exploits are located, at least, in Egypt, 
Armenia, Greece, Madagascar, Côte de Lavoie, Serbia, Spain, and Indonesia. Companies like Cytrox deploy capabilities formerly achievable only by governments, but then if you look at the customer list, effectively, they're functioning as contractors. Google says, Our findings underscore the extent to which commercial surveillance vendors have proliferated capabilities historically only used by governments with the technical expertise to develop and operationalize exploits. Google thoroughly disapproves of the way this sector is doing business. They say, Tackling the harmful practices of the commercial surveillance industry will require a robust, comprehensive approach that includes cooperation among threat intelligence teams, network defenders, academic researchers, and technology platforms. We look forward to continuing our work in this space and advancing the safety and security of our users around the world. Microsoft President Brad Smith, speaking yesterday in London at the Microsoft InVision conference, renewed calls for laws of conflict in cyberspace, InfoSecurity magazine reports. The rules he envisions are essentially transpositions of traditional jus in bello considerations, proportionality, discrimination, and the avoidance of perfidy. They're nonetheless sound for being familiar. Smith sees the hybrid war in Ukraine as having lent new urgency to the development of international norms. The cyber phases of Russia's hybrid war have shown some correlation with kinetic operations, but less than many had expected. PC Mag describes the ways in which cyber operations appear to have been conducted without close coordination with conventional forces. China has generally supported Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but that support has limits, and Chinese cyber espionage against Russian targets has continued. Security Affairs reports that a cyber espionage group, Space Pirates, is targeting the Russian aerospace industry. Active since at least 2017, the group is believed to be associated with China-linked APT groups, including APT-41, Winty, Mustang Panda, and APT-27. Positive Technologies discovered the attacks in 2019 targeting a Russian aerospace enterprise. They've seen the malware reappear in 2020 against Russian government organizations and again in 2021 against another Russian enterprise. Positive Technologies stopped short of directly attributing the activity to Beijing, but circumstantial evidence points in that direction. Checkpoint has also observed the activity, and they're not reticent about either attribution or identifying victims. A report yesterday details a targeted campaign that has been using sanctions-related baits to attack Russian defense institutes, part of the Rostec Corporation. The investigation shows that this campaign is part of a larger Chinese espionage operation that has been ongoing against Russian-related entities for several months. CPR researchers estimate with high confidence that the campaign has been carried out by an experienced and sophisticated Chinese nation-state APT. They think the activity bears significant similarities to earlier campaigns by Twisted Panda. The goal is evidently theft of intellectual property, and the choice of sanctions as fishbait shows once again how quickly Chinese espionage actors adapt and adjust to world events, using the most relevant and up-to-date lures to maximize their chances of success. Fronton, a botnet allegedly built by a subcontractor of Russia's Federal Security Service, is much more versatile than initially thought, ZDNet reports. When the botnet was first exposed by a hacktivist group in 2020, 
Its primary goal was presumed to be launching DDoS attacks. Now, researchers at NISOS say the botnet is more properly viewed as a system developed for coordinated inauthentic behavior on a massive scale. NISOS explains that Fronton includes a web-based dashboard known as SANA that enables a user to formulate and deploy trending social media events en masse. Late last night, Russia-aligned hacktivists of the Killnet Group and its Legion affiliate hit another series of Italian targets, specifically websites operated by the Italian Foreign Ministry and its National Magistrates Association, Reuters reports. The group last week had conducted a similar operation against Italian organizations. Those were organized as retaliation for Russia's exclusion from the Eurovision Song Contest, The nature of the attacks hasn't been further specified. North Korea's Lazarus Group is exploiting the Log4J vulnerability to target unpatched VMware Horizon Apache Tomcat servers, bleeping computer reports. Researchers at ASEC observed the attacks last month, saying the attackers are deploying either the NukeSped backdoor or the GinMiner CryptoMiner on the compromised servers. In the cases where NukeSped was used, the goal of the attack was assessed to be information gathering. IBM X-Force researchers have analyzed 13 cryptors created by cybercriminal group ITG23 that have been used with malware by ITG23 and its third-party distributors. Cryptors are applications that encrypt an obscure malware so that it isn't detected by antivirus software and malware analysts. One cryptor has seen repeated use with the CACBOT banking trojan, with one notable appearance with the GOZI banking trojan. X-Force found evidence that ITG23 had been scaling up their cryptor efforts by mid-2021, with some use by Emotet and ID malware, which suggests a possible link between ITG23 and Emotet and ID operators. Researchers at Sentinel Labs describe a supply chain attack against the Rust development community that they're calling Crate Depression. They write, The malicious dependency checks for environment variables that suggest a singular interest in GitLab continuous integration pipelines. Infected CI pipelines are served a second-stage payload. We have identified these payloads as Go binaries built on the red-teaming framework Mythic. Given the nature of the victims targeted, This attack would serve as an enabler for subsequent supply chain attacks at a larger scale relative to the development pipelines infected. The campaign appears to use some social engineering. Sentinel Labs said, We suspect that the campaign includes the impersonation of a known Rust developer to poison the well with source code that relies on the typo-squatted malicious dependency and sets off the infection chain. And Reuters reports that Canada will join the other members of the Five Eyes in banning Huawei from its 5G infrastructure. Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne said, We intend to exclude Huawei and ZTE from our 5G networks. Providers who already have this equipment installed will be required to cease its use and remove it under the plans we're announcing today. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. 
With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Marty Resch is CEO of Netography, a network security company that's looking to take on the challenge of today's distributed dispersed networks and users, what they refer to as the atomized network. Before joining Netography, Marty Resch was the founder and CEO of Sourcefire, and before that, the creator of the open source project, Snort. Well, uh, actually, when I started writing it, this is back in uh, late 1998, um, I was just doing it as kind of a rainy days and weekend project. Um, I was using it to monitor my home cable modem, and um, I was uh, uh, basically teaching myself uh, security because, you know, back in the 90s, if you wanted to be in cybersecurity, you basically, you know, you taught yourself. So, yeah, I was kind of uh, just horsing around, and I eventually decided that I would release it as an open source project just to see if anybody would use it. And maybe I thought I'd get a few emails and it would be fun. And uh, so, no, I had absolutely no idea what was about to happen. (laughs) And it just, you know, it absolutely exploded um, within the first, uh, really the first year, uh, just completely took off. Yeah. And then that led to uh, the founding of Sourcefire. And I suppose it's fair to say the rest is history. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Two years later, uh, I started Sourcefire. Snorted become so popular that uh, I uh, I went to work for a startup. I got recruited uh, to work at a startup on the uh, kind of the power of being the guy who wrote Snort. And then um, I left there uh, after not too long and found myself in a position I was looking for a job. And, um, you know, Snort had gotten so popular that eventually it kind of dawned on me that uh, if I didn't figure out how to make money on this, somebody else would. So uh, I decided to uh, give it a shot. And I spent a few months thinking of business plans that uh, might, you know, get people to want to pay for something that's free. And then I, uh, I launched Sourcefire. Now, Cisco acquired Sourcefire back in 2013. 
Um, and so you joined Cisco. Um, I believe you were the chief architect of their security business group. What was that blending of companies like? And, and what, was, what was going on at Cisco at the time? So um, Cisco, uh, you know, was getting pressure in the firewall world, um, specifically next generation firewalls uh, from uh, some upstart companies like Palo Alto Networks. So they were looking uh, to us to help them, um, you know, bring our great technology into their great uh, organization and kind of uh, have this very virtuous um, effect of, you know, t- taking our, our great stuff, pairing it with uh, great Cisco technology and then, um, you know, selling it through the Cisco uh, sales machine. I learned all sorts of really interesting things when I got there because, the, you know, it is such a big company and it is such a big business. The firewall business alone was uh, three times the size of SourceFire's business when we got there. So it was hmm. a wow. little bit humbling. So it was really uh, a fascinating place to work. Now, today you are CEO of Netography. Um, can you give us some insights there? I mean, it, it strikes me that with the success that you had, uh, you were probably in a position to be able to choose what you wanted to do next. Uh, what drove this decision? I started talking to uh, Barrett Lyon, who's the uh, co-founder and was the CEO of the company, uh, a little over a year ago about joining the company. And, you know, yeah, I did have a lot of optionality. So I was trying to figure out if I wanted to join, you know, why why netography? Why would I want to join netography? And what the company uh, has built is this uh, network metadata analysis pr- platform. And, um, you know, that's a lot of uh, big, juicy words, but what's it mean <laughs> practically? Um, well, practically speaking, what we're able to do is we're able to take information from the network about the network and kind of uh, figure out what you've got, what it's doing, what's happening to it, the attacks that we're seeing, and and the effects of attacks um, that uh, are taking place in the network environment. And we do it uh, without having to deploy any hardware or software. So what that means practically, if you think about network traffic like, uh, you know, uh, envelopes with letters inside of them. The envelopes have addresses on them. They go from point A to point B. Then the computers open up the le- the envelope and see, you know, read the letter. That's kind of the way packets on networks uh, work, in, you know, kind of very basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, the problem is, is that the, you know, the letters are going to be encrypted. So we could still see the envelopes going back and forth, but we couldn't see what was inside them anymore. And, you know, that breaks Snort and a lot of other technologies like Snort when that happens. Well, one of the fundamental uh, premises that Zero Trust is built on is we're going to encrypt everything uh, out of the gate, and to decrypt it, you have to be authorized to be there. So that's one of the primary enforcement mechanisms for doing this. Well, that's really bad for anything that does deep packet inspection because it effectively blinds it. So we knew about this back in the Cisco days, and um, I wrote a report shortly before I, I left the company uh, about what happens uh, if the you know the networks go dark, as we called it. They they become encrypted, and we can't uh, really interpret what's going on in them anymore. And I basically had three conclusions, and one of them was you have to build a network metadata platform so that we can use the information that's still there on the network to tell us about the network. So that's what Netography does. And I was really intrigued by that, and then. Um, you know, I started looking at the competitive picture and I realized that all the competitors that were out there that were doing things similar to netography were still on the uh, old appliance architecture and the old um, deep packet inspection architecture, which meant, practically speaking, their days were numbered. So I saw a big opportunity there. You know, getting your start when you did, and, and I, I guess cybersecurity is one of those industries where, you know, uh, 
the success of Snort starting back in the late 90s uh, qualifies you as technically being an old-timer. Um, <laughs> what what have you seen in terms of change? I mean, the the professionalization of the of the industry. I mean, what what are some of the things that strike you? Well, you can actually learn it in, in uh, a university now, <laughs> so that's that's yeah. new. Uh, you don't have to just teach yourself. It's still uh, really good to uh, sit down and get hands on experience with uh, you know how attack and defense work, and um, you know how risk management works, and policy, and you know all the other pieces of the puzzle. So that's that's changed a lot. It's been uh, much more professionalized. The tools have gotten more sophisticated. The problem has gotten a lot harder too, you know, uh, because more and more stuff runs software these days. Uh, every place there's software, there's opportunity for bugs that are security bugs, and it never goes away. In fact, it just gets bigger and bigger because the problem gets bigger and bigger as people, you know, deploy software and do all the other things that uh, we like to do. As uh, you know, uh, the Andreessen Horowitz guys say, software is eating the world. Well. That's like permanent employment for security people. That's Marty Resch from Netography. There's more to our conversation. In fact, you'll find extended versions of many of our CyberWire interviews over on CyberWire Pro on our website, thecyberwire.com. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast, Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, you know, I, I, you have been tracking uh, some interesting goings on uh, when it comes to some folks sort of targeting their phishing efforts towards some cryptocurrency folks. What, what's going on here? Yes, and good to be back here again. This is something that our uh, volunteer handler, Jan Kopriva, uh, ran into. And it's sort of a little bit of convoluted scam. It starts out kind of like you would have phishing scam to expect starting out. You get a link to a obviously fake a crypto coin trading platform, but there's a little twist to it. Uh, you actually get a username and password to log in. Uh, the email states that they just transferred some money and you know uh, to check out your account. Hey, here is your username and password. So <laughs> it news, kind of looks news. like a, yeah, it's crypto after all. Who cares about security? So right. uh, and so far, it, it looks a little bit legit uh, and kind of like one of those misrouted emails. So oh. it uh, really sort of appeals now to the creed of the recipient. And of course, creed is always a very powerful motivator. Uh, after you log in to this uh, crypto trading platform, you'll notice there's actually some uh, Bitcoins in the account. And there is a feature that allows you to transfer that Bitcoin amount into a checking account. 
Now, okay, um, what what's next? You know, let, let's so click far, so good. And, and see, see what happens there. <laughs> right. and, um, so, uh, so you click the button you want those uh, bitcoins, but there is a little hitch here. While there's a pretty good amount of bitcoins in the account, something sort of short of thirty bitcoins, they tell you, hey. Uh, we actually have like a minimum amount that you need to withdraw, uh, so which is thirty bitcoins, and uh, and that's sort of where the scam now starts, uh, where they're telling you, hey, you know, just top off you, up your account, and uh, we'll make sure you get those thirty bitcoins. So, what are you going to do? They're giving you the quick QR code where to send the bitcoin to in order to top off your account, and uh, off your bitcoins go, never to be seen again. Huh. So is there like, I don't know, 29.5 Bitcoins in there and you yeah, have to there, top it off? There's something close to it, yeah. <laughs> uh, because they want to make sure that the amount you need to top off is small enough or people typically have that sitting around in their wallet. Like you know, 30 Bitcoins is, even at today's prices, still you know, more than most people have sitting in their account. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also go initially through a little validation where they sort of transmit like 0.00001 Bitcoin, or at least they claim to do verify that your account is working. So they they make you jump through quite a few hoops here to get to your Bitcoins, uh, but all kind of in an effort to make sure that you, know, you sort of st- stick with them, you actually give them a, a valid uh, address later in order to transfer your Bitcoins from. Now, if you are someone who's trying to make your way through this, if you look at the Bitcoins that they're offering up as the lure, are they legit? Like, could you go look up and, and check to see, is is this a real, is the lure that they're using, uh, you know, a real source of some of these funds? I don't know if uh, that Bitcoin actually is, I doubt they exist. I doubt mm. these Bitcoins exist. I'm not sure if they actually give you like the actual account uh, ID that sort of public key here uh, where these Bitcoins are sitting. They obviously give you then a public ID as they're asking you for uh, to to transfer the money. Haven't had a chance to look into that to see if that's a, if there's actually something short of 30 Bitcoins in there or uh, how many people actually transferred money to it. That would be another interesting thing to look at. Yeah. No, it's an interesting technique for sure. I mean, obviously the, the suggestions here are, uh, check yourself when you're feeling a little bit greedy, right? <laughs> what else? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's really it. It's one of these typical advanced fee scams where uh, the attacker wants a little bit money in order to give you a lot of money. And the lot of money you're supposed to get is yeah, usually uh, not there. And also there's always this sort of little bit illicit part uh, that sort of will prevent you asking for help from others to check whether or not it is uh, valid. Mm-hmm. The... Uh, I compare it always to the good old parking lot scam where someone says, hey, they found this big wallet of money for $50. They'll tell you where it is, kind of. And uh, people fall for that as well in, in the real world. And, yeah. uh, so, and it's, it's always great plus that illicit aspect where basically makes it less likely for people also to complain if they fall for it. Right, right, right. And they count on your embarrassment uh Yep. To not to not uh, check in with law enforcement. All right. Well, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't miss this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Yanir Sarimi of Orca Security. We're discussing auto warp, critical cross-account vulnerability in Microsoft Azure automation service. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Rachel Gelfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Haru Prakash, Justin Savi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.